0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca.
1: I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. And I think, I think we've got some really exciting stuff coming up. I know we say that every week. Yes. We really do. We say, oh, this is exciting. This is great. But one I was excited by and the other you were very excited by. And by the end, we were both excited by what the other was excited by. I hope I made some sense then.
0: You definitely did. I mean, uh, our legacy podcast series has been wildly popular. Um, But one of the things, I know we talked about it a little bit during my road trip to Oregon last summer, is how the wine industry in Oregon parallels uh, the timeline with what's happening in Ontario.
1: Yes, very true.
0: And I'm talking about the legacy podcast series because we were fortunate enough to have two of... Uh, the founding members of the Oregon wine uh, wine scene in Toronto pouring their wines.
1: Now, if I'm not mistaken, and it's been a while since we've we've talked to them because we did talk to them uh, a bit, but this was two out of the seven uh, of the first wineries in Oregon.
0: Yes, if we're talking about Argyle and Adelsheim. Yes,
1: two two outstanding wineries. Yes. And um, but but before we even get to the first interview, a big shout out to Will Prudhomme, who put on a fabulous, fabulous Oregon show. And I hope, (laughs) one, that people were paying attention to what he did, uh, bringing Oregon to Toronto and also how he did it.
0: And I mean, just a bit of reference, because I know that uh, we've both been, I mean, we've been generally positive about the uh, the trade shows that we've recently talked about, California and County and the City, but both of those events definitely had some downsides, things that could have been executed better. But when we're talking about Taste Oregon, I mean, this is one that the moment I found out that it was happening, I was very excited to see what was going to happen, and as it got closer to the event, uh, both the social media presence and the way they just built anticipation for this event was it was outstanding. I mean, I don't know anyone who wasn't really looking forward to that event that knew about it.
1: You, Andre, I know you were so excited. You went through three pair of pants.
0: Yes, that's right. I, I, yeah. I, yes, I definitely went through three pairs of pants. What the hell does that mean?
1: Well, they had to be they had to be cleaned again.
0: Oh, okay, say. okay. I get you. That was a very funny joke, Michael.
1: Well, at least I'm amusing myself.
0: <laughs> um, I guess we can get straight to it. So this is a twofer. We were lucky enough to sit down with uh, Roland Soles, uh, formerly of Argyle, but now is doing his own thing at Rocco Winery. And uh, he is actually fortunate enough that if you want to taste some of these wines, um, they are a little pricey if you're looking for, you know, a $25 bottle but they are repped by uh, Hannah and Sons. Yep, Hannah and Sons. And, um, I mean, if you're looking for something really special, I mean, if you're looking for high quality... Uh, Andre, I know,
1: I know what you're saying. They're pricey, but they've got their place.
0: They've definitely and... got their place, and it, it's it's worth it to get your hands on a piece of um, Oregon history, and I know there's still going to be a lot more wines to come from Rollin', but we were both very excited tasting everything from the sparkling to the pinot that when we sat down with them. So, roll it. We're joined by uh, Roland Souls, one of the uh, founding winemakers of Argyle Winery in Oregon, but also Rocco, his own winery, which is uh, a portmanteau of your name and your wife's name, who... I misspelled in a recent blog post about my wonderful yep. visit to your winery Great. last summer. I like that he said Port Manteau. Yeah. That, uh, sounds, yeah. that makes it sound very <laughs> elegant and we don't no, get no. elegant here.
2: I thought you had to talk like that when you're so close to Quebec. Yeah, <laughs> we,
0: have to, we have to throw in a little French, yes. Um, before we get into who you are and, and why we're so excited to talk to you, what we have in front of us is uh, your first sparkling wine release from yep. Rocco. Sure. And now, why don't you tell us just in in a minute or less everything you can about this wine that we got to know and so i've been
2: making bubbles uh, 31 years in the valley we don't grow Merlot we don't grow Sauvignon Blanc we don't grow Syrah and dang if I'd I'd never found those vines in Champagne so it made me think you know what I can make some pretty cutting-edge sparkling wine and so that's that's what we started doing and it's a it's a long road to hoe and uh, this wine is our first one from Rocco which cracks me up to say because I've been making sparkling wine at Argyle for over 30 years Um, but the greatest compliment I got during the tasting today uh, we were here for the Willamette Valley uh, wine tasting and there's a big uh, public event happening this after uh, this evening was a well-known champagne importer He imports Bollinger comes up to me and said you know what It only has 33% Chardonnay, but I could swear it has more. Hmm. And that's one thing that's fun about this sparkling wine and my mastery of making sparkling wine or my feeling of, of some craftsmanship is that you can adjust what's called dosage in a sparkling wine if you really understand what you're doing and lift elements that you love. So before I blended this, sixty seven percent Pinot, thirty-three percent Chardonnay. I would taste the Chardonnay just on its own and go and oh my god my heart rate would go up. <laughs> it was it was such a delicious Chardonnay. And so when we after aging it in yeast in the bottle, you take the yeast out, those going you know three years later, and you add a liqueur de dosage. And that liqueur de dosage you can take a wine and dissolve the sugar to become the syrup that you add as liqueur de sauce. So by changing the wine that you dissolve the sugar, you can change the, the, the characteristics of sparkling wine. So in my little crafty way, I wanted to lift the, the element of Chardonnay in this wine and, and, and suppress just for a little while that big giant Pinot Noir flavor. And dang, if this didn't come out, pears and white peaches in all kinds of reviews, and it, it's it made it creamy and delicious, and that's what a dosage is supposed to do.
1: It's it's delicious. So, uh, you obviously know Andre because he visited Oregon, and, and he had a great time with you. This is the first time you and I have met, him. and I'm just going to point out to people that you're obviously not from around here. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I understand you have quite the the past of coming from a. a, a state in the south and moving a little bit north and a little political bent and all that. Why don't you tell us,
2: why don't you tell us your, your origin of how you end up in Oregon? I'm from the state where um, when the highway patrol pulls you over and the highway patrolman comes up and says, boy, you got any ID? And I say, about what? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm from the great state of Texas. And uh, you can't hardly take the Texas out of the boy, but you can take the boy out of Texas. Wow. And I've lived in Oregon longer than I've lived anywhere, and I, I, you, you got it right, I'm conflicted. I'm a conflicted Oregonian. <laughs> or I, well, maybe I'm a conflicted Tejano, I don't know.
0: I don't know, you can be proud of, of where you're from and still call the new place home. Absolutely. I guess this is where, part of the podcast where I remind people once again I'm from Saskatchewan But, oh, yeah. we're <laughs> with, but <laughs> proud again, to call huh? Toronto home <laughs> oh my God. Um, But you know what, yet. the reason why I wanted to talk to you Is talk a little bit about the, the origin of, of winemaking in Oregon Because you've been there since the very beginning And I mean, you would have been involved I guess, when did you start making wine in Oregon? Let's start with that uh, 86 Okay, so you started in 86 And okay. I'm guessing you could have gone anywhere to make wine If you're looking in the States, you could have gone to California Yeah, yeah. Um, True. I, I had worked around the world had,
2: uh, the way I got in the wine business it, 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 you know, life a lot of times is just uh, pure luck always choose luck is what they say and so I worked in a Pinot Noir vineyard in Switzerland when I was going through um, just a university from Texas A&M I mean a Texas Aggie working in a Swiss Pinot Noir vineyard is unheard of and it was just an extraordinary experience. I worked for a guy who turned out to be, in the 70s, the world leader in sustainable agriculture and growing great Pinot Noir, the Andes, oh, Andes, <laughs> that's my Texas geography. <laughs> difficulty. The Alps in the background and uh, it just shot me in the, the heart and that's what i knew i wanted to do so then i went to grad school in uh, in davis in california worked in napa worked back in switzerland spent three years in australia which was seminal to my education but during that time i had visited the willamette valley and the second thing about youthful uh, exuberance is one what do you want to do in life two where do you want to do it and i had visited the willamette valley in 1979 and just fell head over heels in love with that valley. The fruits are unique and vibrant and delicious. The strawberries, the blueberries, the hazelnuts are killer. Even the green beans are, are just ridiculous off the hook. It's just such a wonderful agricultural place. And I knew, I don't care, I'm, gonna, I'm coming back to Oklahoma Valley because I saw the diamond in the rough.
0: Okay, well, here's the interesting thing is you've just listed off Australia warm climate, Napa Valley warm climate, Switzerland obviously cool climate. Very cool. How did you walk on that tightrope and decide to fall into cool climate (laughs) winemaking? And I think even though the Pinot from Oregon does get a little riper than what we expect maybe in Burgundy, depending on where you're talking about, and, and Niagara, but I mean, we're tasting this sparkling wine. This is most definitely very good cool climate winemaking in this bottle. This
2: this sparkling wine is what I would call, uh, just like my Chardonnay, a uh, new uh, style for Yankee sparkling wines or Yankee uh, Chardonnays. We've never had a cutting edge style like this uh, produced in in the U.S. ever before. Uh, When I worked in Australia, I worked actually in a very cool environment there. I worked in the Adelaide Hills, Cunawar was very cool for Bordeaux varieties, and we actually made cool climate uh, wines there. So I got an abiding love of those kind of things, but I also, they were head and shoulders uh, from a winemaking and, and, and wine, the Uh they, they were head and shoulders above what I saw as Cal- in California. And I took that skill set to the Willamette because I knew I wanted I didn't care if it, if it was warm. If I fell in love with the Valley and it was war, a warm climate, I'd still be there. <laughs> I just fell in love with the place first. And then I go, you know what? I'm, now I'm going to really fall in love with Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays and Rieslings and, and especially with Spartan.
0: I just, uh, sorry.
2: Well, well, I, just, I, was gonna,
0: I was just going to have uh, Roland,
1: I don't think we've mentioned the name of his winery. We did? We oh, yeah. I mean, actually mentioned, so I'd like him to actually mention the name of the wine. Say anything. remember? I said the word portmanteau. You did, but you actually <laughs> said, you never said what the name of the winery said. You said it's a portmanteau between him and his wine. All right, fine. This I, is but actually, you never said the name of the We'll check the tape, we'll check the tape. This one's called Port uh, Rocco. Rocco. So we're <laughs> Rocco Winery. So we're Rocco Winery. We're, so what do you grow uh, there? Obviously Rocco. Pinot Noir and and what else? A lot right. of people know that Oregon is new for, not known for Pinot, but what else is? is <laughs> yeah.
2: Are you making and what is Oregon? Uh, Rocco now? is, is uh, focused on Pinot Noir, uh, Chardonnay, then the more you know, Burgundian style, I would say, if there is such a thing, a Northern European style. And then now we make this uh, sparkling wine that's just taken the world by storm. It's, a, it's, more, it's more like a grower champagne than, than
0: anything. You know, I, I think this is it's. It's definitely on par with champagne if we're tasting this blind. It's, it's a delicious wine. I'm, I'm really happy with it. It's called RMS. It doesn't say Rocco
1: anywhere on the front that I can see. That's right. It, but it's actually your name, isn't it? Roland Michael
2: Souls? Yeah, that's so. right. RMS. And Andre's oh. checking me out. It says, this. It says Rocco oh. on
0: the back, but no. It's, no what no, I mean, I it's a very nice, like, it's kind of an old-school... Uh, Kind of very traditional, conservative it's, label, but it would look nice on a table for special occasions. It's, it's, it's
2: got the Oregon Trail in the background,
0: so it kind of you know
2: symbolizes you know maybe the, oh, that's the pathway cool. that that, that took to get to uh, Oregon.
0: And, and you've got Willamette, the uh, you got the Thunderbird on the right hand side. Yeah, that's, that's our the,
2: Northwest version of the Thunderbird, That's it's one of our favorite uh, petroglyphs. So that, that was, it's a delicious, it's a delicious wine.
1: Yeah. And
2: how many, how many uh, years on on the lees? Three, three years on the yeast, and it's we made the whopping five hundred eighty cases. Oh, and, uh, wow! So we have we have something like a hundred or one hundred fifty put back to to age for ten years. Oh almost. wow! Guess yeah. I have to go back
0: because this taste wine. We need to
2: scourge, dude. This wine is going to last a very long time. I believe you. Very long. That's time. delicious. So All
1: right, we so we we've, we've, we've talked oh. about how
0: you ended up in the. Willamette Valley now you were one of the founding uh partners or, or winemakers with Argyle what year did that correct, happen correct that was our first official vintage was 87 okay and an Argyle is if you talk to anyone from outside of Oregon it's known for its sparkling wine. oh yeah very much so. and in vintages either right when this podcast has come out or just recently there was a very nice Pinot Noir that just came through vintages as well so tell oh, me yeah. tell me about how that got started what you were involved with and how you we, ended up where you are now.
2: I started out making um, Spark and wine and uh, Chardonnay. In fact our first Chardonnay we made at Argyle was uh, an Oregon Top 100 wine spectator so uh, that was cool and we had to go to the vineyards the vineyards that we had taken control of And literally, it took us five years to coax these vines back in a semblance of of balance that I wanted to see. And the deal was, I I was not going to make red wine Pinot Noir that was good one year and kind of ordinary the next year and good the next. I I just wasn't going to do it. And so we wanted to get our viticulture right first and then started making Pinot. So it really wasn't until 92 that we made our first red wine. Wow. Well, and today, I mean, we've gotten I've uh, you know, achieved whatever matters top 100s for for red wine Pinot, white wine Chardonnay, and sparkling wine multiple times. So and speaking it, of Pinot, it's unusual. I feel that we should open this. Okay. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> the man needs a drink.
1: Just can't sit and talk all night. So you you put me in charge of this one. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pour heavy. That's what I've been known for. Good idea. And this is the Rocco uh, Private Stash 2014 Pinot Noir and number twelve. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that you would put like a number twelve and a, a, a vintage date because usually when you see you know, private stash number 12 or cuvee number six, it usually means that it's not a vintage that they've, they've, you know, made a blend or whatever, and and that's the 12th time they've done it. So what is... Well, I mean, you got it right
2: away. I mean, you can tell that that, that, that the R.O. in Rocco is not a marketing genius. (laughs) So, So the first one we made was 2003, we called it number one. And then I go well. I guess in 2004 we'll call it number two. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is it really private or is it? Uh... Yeah, we call it private stash because it's um, it comes from our own wits and vineyard. That's really unique. Um, and what's cool about this wine, you could you could almost call it the mutant as well. And you, uh, what happened was, Pinot Noir is known to be um, highly uh, genetically unstable. Just like I, most Texans? Yeah, like Texans. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> and so
2: I was wandering through a, a block of clone 777 Pinot Noir, and I, I flagged a vine where the number of clusters are the same as its neighbors. The, but the clusters are half that size. Half the size. Went back and looked at it again, the next year, same thing, the next year, same thing, the next year, same thing. And then I thought, you know what, this must be for real. So I took cuttings off of this one vine, uh, made plants, and I planted a whopping two acres out of my 20-acre vineyard to this weird mutant clone of Pinot Noir. And it's turned out to be glorious. You don't
0: get very much of it. Well, my, my eyebrows went right up it's because amazing. the That's alcohol a- on it is 14.5% but the acidity is so beautifully balanced on this. This is, this is a wine that in my house would fall into the category of dangerous, because it's, even now it's still quite young. Tannin is still a little bit grippy, but still nice and, and velvety on the back of the tongue. Oh, yeah. This would put me under the table if I didn't know the alcohol content, because it tastes it, it tastes like a perfectly ripe Pinot, but. I
1: know you both are gonna know what I'm talking about when I say, this is one of those holy shit wines. Yeah. Nice. Where you sip on it and you go, holy shit. And it really is. It's it's, it's a... It's, a it's perfectly right,
0: yes. but it's not... It's it, it, it doesn't clobber the palate. This is elegant. It's yeah. elegant at 14.5%. How the yeah. hell do you do that? I know. It's so... No, it's that was so, a serious question. So, How the hell do you do that? It's balanced as all heck.
2: One, it's a clone. Two, you know, um, when you make sparkling wine, there's a very short, tiny window ripening where you can get it too, uh, you can get it underripe or overripe and so as a winemaker making cutting edge sparkling wine you understand high fruit flavor behind, uh, beautiful fruit flavor behind high natural acidity and that just carries over to uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and all that kind of stuff and so that's, I think that's how this works, I pick it at the right time. I focus on uh, protecting the fresh fruit components as much as possible, and it turns out like this. And the, so, clone, the clone
0: helps too. I mean, bang, it's consistent as all heck. So we've talked a bit about the wines, and now we've talked how you've gone from Argyle. How did you go from Argyle to starting your own winery? We, um, we had owned a farm
2: that we had bought in 1987, and had cows and horses on it rather than vines which turned out to be a happy accident because viticulture since 1986-87 to the year 2001 had completely and utterly uh, revolution, revolution. Clones we've never had before. Rootstocks we never thought about using before. S- tight spacings we never even thought that we could use before. Uh, irrigation, all those things came to to uh, you know a peak. And that's when I planted this white sand vineyard, and the fruit off of this vineyard was, oh my God, so delicious that the wife and I looked at each other and we go like, "Wow, we got to do something for you know, with, together to make Rocco, and with this fruit as our as our foundation, and it's it's been phenomenal, just phenomenal the quality wise." So yeah.
0: when was your first vintage as Rocco? Oh,
2: 2003. That was a number one.
1: That was number one. Yes, that's right, <laughs> number one. So, private stash, number one. Mm. This, and this is delicious. Like, I, yeah. could, I, could drink, I could drink this all day. And <laughs> you, you were going to send us a case, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what
2: I'm Only if the LCBO will let me. The, yeah.
0: the, this is actually a piece of advice. And this is a piece of advice to the people who are, are traveling. And uh, I'm not kissing your ass because I don't need to. I have you here and I have the wine in my glass. But when you do travel as a wine tourist, whether you're a writer or not, you do take a bit of a risk when you're buying a bottle at a winery because you meet someone as engaging as yourself, and you want to make sure that the wines are good. The thing is, the wines are just as good as we're as we're saying, and we can definitely look forward to some of these being in the vintages section soon. I hope so. I, this, I hope a lot of it comes through. I think you have. You have something coming
2: through, do you not? We do. We have uh, the private stash and the Marsh Estate. Single vineyard is going to go through classics catalog at LCBO, and then tonight we got 680. It's a sold-out crowd coming to taste uh, Willamette Valley and Oregon wine, which is uh, and it's been a long time since you've been here as a a group. It is, which is 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 is. nice, and I hope that uh, Rollins never been to Toronto. We and we used to come through here in the 90s as an industry. Yes, uh, but now uh, this is the first time in a long time, and I think. I think
0: uh, uh, I think Ontarians are ready for us. I think they. I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting just to to it's see. A real vibe. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're excited for it now that we've got. There, there's a bit more of a spotlight starting to come on on local in Niagara and in Prince Edward County and. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand how parallel the histories are with Oregon and Niagara in terms of how the wine industry pops up. We've gone in different directions, but I mean, if you want to be on the ground floor, like now's the time to start getting into Oregon wines. I also think
1: that it's important to get uh, Ontarians used to cool climate wines. Let's be honest. We're uh, We're a cool climate climate. And uh, yeah. so is Oregon, and if we can you know, tell them, look, if you like Oregon, you're going to like Ontario, too, and everybody should when, stop loving California. When you have your own
2: resident um, uh, wine uh, growing, area. Uh, it builds appreciation for a wine culture. And so we have that in the, in the Willamette Valley. So, like, tomorrow I'm flying back to Willamette Valley, and I got a case of wines from, uh, you know, the Niagara area, and Prince Edward County, and all these different benches and stuff that you guys have and i just cannot wait to brown bag them with with a bunch of my buddies it's gonna be it's gonna be a blast on the steel girder
0: right where you're gonna sit up there yeah 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 Yeah, yeah. well thank you so much for giving us the time and then for sharing these wines with us and uh I'm sure I'll have plenty more to say when I taste through some of the other wines that are here tonight. you, know, you already tasted them. So. I've already gone through them, and and I was really and impressed he
1: lived, to, the he lived to tell about it. I lived <laughs> the tell how I'm sitting here
0: still and not slumped <laughs> over into the bag of ice. 14.5% yeah. yeah. alcohol, man. we got to be careful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> i, mean, I got to drive home.
1: Andre, that was the one that you were most excited about. You found out he was coming to town, and... You you literally lit up my text message, my <laughs> Facebook, and my email within two minutes.
0: Well, I mean, it's one of those things that when you're doing a, a wine trip as a journalist, sometimes you run out of time. And I was just r- thrilled to get a chance to get a do-over to spend some time with Roland because my visit at his winery was cut short simply by time. And uh, to have him bring that was certainly some of the the top wines that I remember tasting in the summer. And to get a chance to taste that sparkling wine again was really something special.
1: And then while we were there, uh, I kind of bumped into, I had no idea he was coming. David Edelstein, who again is one of these, you know, iconic members of the uh, pioneers of Oregon. And I, I just kind of asked him on the spot. I said, would you mind sitting down with us? And such a gracious gentleman, he said, uh, "Sure, when you need me." Um,
0: Not only was also- he gracious, but I mean, he was a lot of fun. Like he was, oh, yeah. he was all about this interview, and I think I think it really comes through when you when you listen to this.
1: Andre got to pick uh, one of his favorites, and uh, Morgan, and I get to pick one of mine. We're sitting here with, uh, David. And, and
3: then somebody else got to pick me. Yes, and then yeah, and then, yeah, and right. then you and have a sub in left for left that guy. Yeah, yeah. So because he you. was unavailable.
1: Correct. So thank yeah. you, David, <laughs> all time for uh, yeah. sitting yeah. in with yeah, us. Uh, and um, Andre's kinda of shocked that uh, this is a very fruity Chardonnay. Very fruity
3: is this unoped? No, it's entirely in French oak and it's like twenty <laughs> something percent new blood and but it doesn't have a lot of malalactic. Okay. Which is technical speak for Secondary fermentation that, who knows?
0: So it hasn't turned to buttered popcorn like it does a few hours south of you?
3: Well, that's correct. (laughs) So, David,
1: how do you get your uh, start in the wine business? Um, Give us the uh, origin story. Let's see, how did I start in
3: the wine business? I think I I got started in the wine business because I drank. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) That's what you did. Oh, that's why. Oh, because I'm usually drunk. Oh, right. Got it. Okay. Um, sorry. We're interacting with the uh, with the audience here.
0: The audience is Carrie Calshawer from he's A and Z. A to, a to Z. Did she not, Did he actually?
3: He actually that did record? that, right? Yeah.
0: My last name is a silent L and X. Yeah, so, he's a you know, tough one. He's a Frenchie, so uh, yeah, he's. But she's from A to Z Wine Works, or as they say in Oregon, A to Z. Yeah, A to Z. Yeah.
1: So David, again.
3: so even, uh, how did I get my start in wine? Yes.
0: Besides being a drunk. Yeah. No. And also, we're trying to timeline this and give us a year of when that started.
3: So, I would I would say that to answer your question somewhat seriously, my wife at the time and I spent the summer of sixty nine in Europe. Um, that we won't go into Y and, and where we went. Well, it's not that easy. But one of the byproducts of going this over in Europe is we, and it'll sound ridiculously stupid, but we got to realize that different grape varieties were growing in different places and foods were being matched with wines in the locality where they were. And, in 1969, that actually wasn't something that everybody automatically knew about because fine wine in North America was still kind of a new concept. And the idea that you would drink wine for dinner every night, really? I mean, my parents had wine maybe twice a year on the big holidays or something So having seen that, come back to Oregon, um, We decided we wanted to move to the country, and in our first foray southwest of Portland, we ran into a realtor who said that he'd heard that somebody had planted wine grapes. And later that day, we literally stopped some guy on the side of the road who was on this gravel road going up the hill and asked him if he'd ever heard of anybody who had planted grapes, wine grapes. And as it happened, he had heard of somebody who had, because it was him. It was Dick Erath. Um, I don't actually make a practice of stopping people by the side of the road as I'm driving along, but apparently we did it that day, and it was kind of amazing and, and memorable to this day. I've got a photo that recreates it for the for Dick Erath standing in front of his house on, around that time. Um, we ended up meeting Bill Blosser th- through some mutual friends. He hadn't kind of great chef, but he had a uh, May Day party on May 1st, 1971, and invited some of the other people in the wine business, the Letts, the Corys, the Ponzi's, and together with the e and the Soko Bossers, that was like six tenths of the beginning of the wine industry. <laughs> um, and, and we went from thinking we would move out to the country and build harpsichords or throw pops or whatever we were going to do to, well, you might as well buy some land with a south slope and stories loam soil, because you could plant some grapes and that would have.
1: And that is what year? 71. 71. Holy smoke.
3: So you planted in 71? Nope. We bought the land, 19 acres for $24,000. Um... No smiling character yeah.
0: So that's like that's like 1,200 an acre. Uh, yeah. Holy
3: shit. Okay. And it had a well and a foundation for a house. It wasn't just your land. Um,
0: so the average price of a single detached house in Toronto is now north of a million dollars. But uh, continue.
3: Yes. No, no, no. I, it's very similar. Only totally Um <laughs> So... I mean that sort of answers your question, sort of when did we start and why. Well, we got I mean, the why. We got the why we, you started. But well, we when, didn't. We didn't. We didn't really do the why, people. You know?
0: Yes. I mean, well, no. We, the, we've got. We've got the why. Like you got there and you got to see what these people yeah. were doing, but we haven't got the the when you started to plant. I guess we don't have the why well, you decided to go
3: full into we, twenty why acres. Why we decided to actually plant vineyards. I mean, so we started planting the next year. Obviously, we had to create all the plants ourselves because we spent all our money just buying the land, yeah. and building the house by ourselves. So we grew enough plants to plant two acres each of the three important grape varieties, which were?
0: Pinot Noir, yes. Chardonnay, yes. Pinot Gris. No, Riesling, oh, I th- Riesling. Know what? the great it, grapes of Northern Europe. That reaction just warms my heart because I was shocked at how much Pinot Gris I tasted when I was in Oregon. Yes. And I mean, Pinot Gris has a time and a place, but there's just so much more interesting things you could do. Well,
3: I mean, well, Pinot Gris, I think over time, I think it's reached its maximum plantings. Because in a place where you can't ripen huge quantities of Pinot Gris, why would you spend money and time and energy planting something that barely, maybe doesn't even break even? Okay. when you could plant Chardonnay or Pinot Noir that does.
1: Andre, go. I gotta tell you something. The, the, this, uh, no, I gotta, I you gotta, gotta give the names, this, is, this, apple is. Apple this is the Caitlin's Reserve, Reserve Chardonnay 2014. Andre, uh, mark down this date. This is the kind of Chardonnay that if this were the Chardonnay that I was tasting all the time, I would rip up the ABC card. I think maybe, maybe
3: tonight would be the night no, you rip up the ABC gonna card?
1: Because I know someone's gonna serve me a shitty Chardonnay Tomorrow, and I'm going to have to go. And I going wish you
3: a, a tasting of a warmer place.
1: No, I have no idea what I'm doing tomorrow. But somebody's going to give me a chardonnay that's going to make me go. I hate this grape. But David, this is such a fantastic. And you were saying that there's there's the there's,
3: mineral note
0: through this is really it's
3: minerally white peach. It's not ripe fruit. I mean, super ripe. Fruit. Well, it is super ripe fruit, but it's... No, it's actually not. It's not super ripe. I mean, it's not unripe.
1: It's it's ripe. It's balanced. There's so much going on in that that glass that it just... just I think you
0: guys are too close to California that you're calling, comparing that as a super ripe, because, like, the flavors in this are really nice. Go right to the orchard. Uh, apples, uh, peaches. Yeah, yeah. No, so you know, so, so okay.
1: your okay. first vintage is wine. Let's get some. Yeah, okay. Let's sidetrack. Sidetrack side track by the start. Okay. Day. So
3: people ask when did you start the wine and I say, well, what would you like? We planted grapes in '72. Excuse me. We bought land in '71. planted grapes in '72. Made home wine in '76. The birds actually ate everything in '77. Mm-hmm. So in '78 we made commercial wine. So somewhere in there is when we started.
1: So what, what what are you in the, on the depth chart of Oregon wine? You're weird. We
3: are the yeah. fifth vineyard in the Willamette Valley and the ninth or tenth winery in the Willamette Valley. The, there are wow. now a few more.
1: No, no, now a few more. Yes, yeah. so we see a room full here at the. Okay, so this, is, oh, this
3: is a microcosm. Yeah. I mean, oh, there's there's five hundred and seventy one wineries in the Willamette Valley and 706 that's over, that's a year right, and a half ago right, in Oregon.
0: Right. Yeah. So this is this is the nerdy question. A little curious about. That you had to do the planting yourself. Did you plant on rootstock? No.
3: Why would you plant
0: on rootstock? Um, Phylloxera?
3: There was no okay.
0: oh, How? What shape are your vineyards in now?
3: The ones that were planted on their own? Yeah. Slowly dying.
0: Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's one thing if you go to my website, Andrewinerview.ca, I talked about my time with Alette, with uh, Jason, yep. and... Uh, he told me some amazing stories because they don't use, they didn't use rootstock, but they planted no, seeds no, in the ground. No, and that's I mean, that like would have cost mind. a
3: fortune. We didn't have money.
0: And so. now we've got these gorgeous vineyards that are 40, 50 years old, and they're all slowly dying. But I was hearing yeah. stories of uh, he's looking for the cure to phylloxera if he can.
3: The pho- the cure is to take it out. And- I mean, sadly, I mean, there's, there's a chemical you can spray that goes down into the roots and sort of sets back phylloxera and if, if, you, if you felt like doing that, you can do it, but it's, it's not a long-term solution. All right. And part of the problem is, I mean, now that, now that there have been places in the world that have planted that you can taste today without root stock. And the same place where plants are on rootstock, people have started to realize they aren't the same. Rootstock manipulates things. It's not necessarily bad, but yeah. it changes. Them. And there are at least two people in Burgundy that are saying, we are planting vineyards on their own roots, even though we know they're going to die slowly. Because we want the purity of Pinot Noir growing in the ground on its own. So it
1: just just means you don't get very old
3: vines. No. But I
0: mean, the vineyards in in Oregon now are 40, 50 years old, and and they're just now slowly starting to die off. Like the the Irie vineyards, they have vineyards that are 50 50 years old now. Do you have some vineyards of a similar age?
3: Not quite, but we started planting, as I said, in 72.
0: And are you just, you're you're letting the vines just kind of die as long as you can get fruit off of them and then you'll replant? Yeah, I mean, I
3: don't know that we have a systematic vision of how this all works, (laughs) but we would love block one at Quarter Mile Lane to live as long as we can because it's amazing. And, I mean, it's, we don't know what rootstock to use to replicate those vines. I mean, you're about to have... A wine that is based on that—it's no longer just made from that block, but this original wine was that block. That was our oldest single marble.
1: So now these these wines—the Caitlin—and now we're about to try the Elizabeth. They're named after your daughters.
3: Well, produce. the Elizabeth is, and, the and then Cate- we made the Chardonnay and realized, oh, screw we 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 only have one daughter. So we have to go find a daughter.
1: So you you manufactured a daughter? Well, we didn't. We just kind of Angelina her. Jolie kind of. You went to could a different have, country and could
3: have, but no, we just stole <laughs> yeah. it. It wasn't against the law in those days, and uh, so we could do that. Um, it's going to be a short one. Sorry. Um, no, we uh, one of our oldest friends and her daughter just moved back from Canada. And they were living with this Canadian connection. Yeah, Canadian connection, although B.C., which is kind of like the enemy. But, um, yeah.
0: No, we're okay with B.C. right now. Yeah, we like B.C.
3: Again, they are back in good favor.
0: Yeah, we're back in good favor with B.C.
1: Now, this is... uh,
3: Even though they're being sued by the U.S.? Oh, you guys are suing them? Oh, sure. Oh, what is it? Well, because they have B.C. wines in the grocery stores, and our wines can't be
0: Oh, yes, of course. Okay, you got a president who's going to rip up NAFTA. That'll take care of that lawsuit. Yeah, no, exactly. or uh, be and One yeah. of those two. One yeah, of those two. Yeah,
3: I mean, it, 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 it's really it, or get bored because you can't actually do anything.
1: Yeah, you can't do anything. Yeah. So uh, I was at the tasting earlier today, yes. and um, I, I was just blown away by by both of these wines. Um, this how, is how very pretty just, and <laughs> Yeah, pretty the Pinot is. How wonderful that Chardonnay is. Like you obviously learned something since '76. I don't know, I see you're looking. The home wine year. Yeah, the home wine year. You obviously learned something. Well,
3: we, I mean, I think we've learned a lot. And I was the original winemaker, of course, because we couldn't afford anybody else. Uh, eventually, I took over the me that I taught. And eventually, in 2001, we got a real winemaker. that actually had jobs at other wineries and got to the School at Davis and, you know, that kind of stuff. And now we're making those one that level of professionalism and detail uh, and it's it's pretty wonderful to have wines like this but so this is 2013 Elizabeth 2013 was this sort of ridiculous vintage in the sense into August it was going to be the warmest vintage ever
0: okay oh I heard this story yeah. continue
3: yeah and it got cool at the end and then it rained a little bit and then it rained a little bit more. And then one weekend it rained 150 millimeters. Wow, okay. And in other places in the universe, that would have spelled the end of the universe, as it was going. I mean, people don't have that much rain that comes down in one day. And sort of this is it.
0: 2013, right? Yeah. yeah. So in my visit down there, 2013, when the winemaker or the winery, the person at the tasting counter is pouring wine for you. They defined their Pinot as to whether they harvest it before or after the
3: rain came. And this is both, because it is a blend of multiple sites. But the wines made after the rains weren't worse necessarily than the wines made before the rains, because it was not the first time it had ever rained during harvest in Oregon. We had actually learned something over the course of time. Um, and, and the wines, I mean, you have to deal with two problems with it, right? You have to deal with pollution. So if there's a lot of water that's been sucked up for one reason or another, then you've got to do something with it. And you can simply, you can just bleed juice off. Like is was often done in Burgundy, which we've done fairly regularly. You can also concentrate it by taking water out of that must, out of the juice, either using a high-tech machine or freezing the juice. And basically, you've got ice, which is all water, which you throw away, and all the stuff left below, which is concentrated, and you put that back in the cremator. Um So one way or another, you deal with the dilution issue. The other thing you have to deal with is rot. There is rot in the vineyard. You do not want to pick those grapes. So you tell the pickers, don't pick anything that looks like it has rot. You also sort as you dump the grapes into the into the picking bin, and then you sort a third time in the winter. And if you do that, you're not gonna make it into a super hot bridge, but you can end up making, in this case, amazing
1: wine. I think there's a nice elegance to yeah. this wine
0: that
3: but it's you not thin.
0: No, well, it's not thin. And, and that's there's a lot of flavor, but I mean you talked about how you when you were in France in 69, you you saw wine and food and, and, yeah, and yeah. region. We can the other. but it, I mean, both of these ones, even your Chardonnay, I think that's amazing about your Chardonnay, is especially when you start getting California Chardonnay, even a well-made California Chardonnay, it gets really hard to pair with food, but the mineral and the acid note in your Chardonnay, it is extremely versatile, like right. you can put a lot more food on the table next to that without worrying about... Either blasting your palate with the, the California shard. I know we're shitting on California shard, and said we will, I, know, I, like I it. Would
1: not be... We're
0: allowed to at the moment. But I mean, we're talking. Like, to... if we were talking to sh- California people, then we wouldn't do that. No, but, but I mean, but we I mean, because... we'd shit on Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's, yeah. A, it's a time and a place for everything, though. I mean, for me, yeah. when I want a bottle of California Chardonnay, that's my dessert because I can't be bothered to pair food with it. If I want to put a bottle of Chardonnay on the table and make it an event, This is what I'd be reaching for, whether it's from Oregon or Niagara. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and there's some relationship. Niagara is actually a warmer place to grow grapes than the Willamette Valley, not because on any given day it isn't warmer in the Willamette Valley, but because it is warmer longer in Niagara, and it's really warm in July, and then by the time you get to September, particularly October, it's it's you're lucky to get to 15 degrees at that point. Obviously, you can have days where it's warmer than that, but it's typically a very cool beginning and a very cool end in the Valley, and that's why. Ultimately, if you look at the total degree days, it ends up being the coolest place to grow grapes in, in North America.
0: All right, th- this is a, a, a non sequitur, but you're an American, right?
3: No, no, I, I'm, yes, yeah.
0: Right. But Yeah. But you've got your degrees in Celsius and your rain in millimeters. Well. I mean, that's, uh, it's I, much appreciated, Well, but. yeah,
3: I mean, you know, we're in Canada, you know? Why? Well, <laughs> also,
0: he's also international.
1: He's a man of the world. That's what yeah. he is. So I, I hate to say it, but I think we're going to have to wrap this up because the music's going to start getting loud or people are going to start coming in to this uh, this Oregon tasting. And we're going to let uh, David...
3: This, this biggest Oregon tasting ever outside the U.S.
1: Which Holy, shit. excellent. excellent. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. we thank Inc for that. One.
0: Yes, guys, yeah, they've done a great yeah. job promoting this and uh, I've really been looking forward to this. This was one I was looking forward to too, so...
3: Okay. It's a great idea to actually have no lights, so you can't see the. That's right. That's what you really
1: want. You want no lights. Drink all you can. Thank you. Thank you very much for sitting
3: with us. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it.
0: (laughs) You know, I still can't believe how few of the vines in Oregon are actually Chardonnay, and both Rollin and David make excellent Chardonnay. And, uh, I mean, if, if you're ever traveling and you want to go on the hunt, Oregon is definitely a place to look for Chardonnay and maybe the place, one of the places that will make Michael rip up his ABC membership card.
1: Well, I think I mentioned that right there in the, in the podcast. If I had this every single day, I would be, I wouldn't even have joined the movement, but, uh, David makes such a fabulous Chardonnay. It was like, um, I was, I just, I just, I wanted to bathe in it and drink it even though I was bathing in
0: it. Careful Michael, that's the sort of thing that I say about Chardonnay. Oh that's true. That's true.
1: I'll but... take that back.
0: <laughs>
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't want to drink the stuff Andre's bathing in though. How about that? That takes that removes me from your uh from your realm.
0: Well now isn't this just disgusting. We have people listening to this picturing us naked, covered in wine.
1: And you're not the first. You're not the first people.
0: <laughs> Um, You know what? I really hope that this event becomes an annual thing or maybe a biannual thing. I know the bar's been set really high. I know we can't stop praising uh, Will Predom and the Taste Oregon people, but man, the space was great. I hope we see more tastings there. The selection of wines was great.
1: Um, We should mention where it was. It was at the distillery district in the fermentation cellar.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful space and it was the perfect amount of people, perfect amount of tables, and uh I mean yeah
1: it was it was it was great and Thomas Batchelder was there
0: yes Thomas Batchelder was there and actually his wine showed really well really really well and I well. want
1: to tease him up we are uh, working on getting Thomas uh, I don't know if he fits in with a legacy series but I think he fits in with the history of Ontario so I guess yeah he would probably fit in with that legacy series
0: Definitely. I'm looking forward to sitting down and talking to him. I mean, if anything, he's become a sort of a flag bearer for the country just with the fact that, uh, I mean, he's making wines in Oregon, Burgundy and Niagara.
1: And uh, what I found amazing is I know he makes them, you know, in Oregon and everything like that. And you you hear him tell his stories about Oregon and you're like, yeah, sure. But everybody knew him there. Everybody knew him.
0: Yep. I mean, I found that when I was there. I mean... What? What? Why? There are very few winemakers in the world where you can walk into a, a facility where the man isn't even making wine anymore and say, "Hey, do you know Thomas?" And that happened in Oregon. They knew exactly who I was talking about.
1: Anyway, now we're obviously back to Ontario. We're talking about <laughs> Oregon. Let's wrap this thing up already. You can I'm sure subs- people are tired of hearing from us.
0: You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a review. Tell us what you think direct angry phone calls to Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com
1: Boy, that just never gets old for you, does it?
0: Definitely not.
1: I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com.
0: I'm Andre Peru from AndreWineReview.ca and as always, good night! Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.